guys, this is a, a special day. Uh, we have a special guest, Steve McVeigh. Uh, Steve's a longtime friend of Hope Fellowship, and uh, many of you know who he is. So I'm just going to get him up here right away, get going, give him as much time as he wants and needs. So let's welcome Steve McVeigh. but we have to let Mr. Sprinter get back there and turn me on back there. All right, how about that? Now we go. Good morning to everybody. I'm glad to see you here. Good to be back at Hope Fellowship again. And uh, it's exciting to see what's going on here. Glad to have our Grace Walk team here. We have been here this weekend for our our, uh, annual summit that we have every year. And we've got folks here from different places around Canada this morning and from Australia and from the United States. And uh, so it's good to, good to see our team, those of you who are here uh, for that event, in this service. And always good to be back with the congregation at Hope Fellowship. I, uh, I want to talk to you this morning for a little while about some things that are on my mind that I've been talking a lot about lately. We are... Uh, This month, in fact, the last day of this month, we're approaching Reformation Day. And, of course, Reformation Day is an annual event on the calendar, on the church calendar. But this year, 2017, it is particularly significant because uh, October 31, just a few weeks from now, 2017 is exactly the 500-year anniversary of the time that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And everybody has seen that image, or many different images probably, of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And that was the the last tremendous movement that took place in the church world. There was an author who recently died in the last year or so that I really enjoyed. Her name was Phyllis Tickle. Phyllis Tickle was the one that founded the uh, religion department of Publishers Weekly, and she was a teacher. She was a writer herself. She was somewhat of a religious sociologist. And Phyllis Tickle uh, would often describe, as she did in her book, The Great Emergence, how that every 500 years, something monumental happens in the church world. And it's something that's just earth-shaking, something that changes the face of what Christianity is. She called it a 500-year rummage sale, where she said that everything's taken out and re-examined, and some of the stuff that's been put back and kept in the attic is finally thrown away. And she said it is an expansion. It's an, it's an understanding. It's a house cleaning. Uh, it's a growth, a step forward in the development of our knowledge of God and His grace. And so she went through church history in one of her books and gave those, fi- uh, those great... Uh, uh, monumental emergences that have happened. In the 5th century, for instance, there was the great Gregory, and there was a division there that centered around doctrine, particularly around the role of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And 500 years later, there was, the, there was another great up, up, upheaval, I will say, in the modern church. And in that, there was a, it revolved around, again, doctrinal truth. It revolved around what was called the Philike controversy that had to do with uh, whether or not Jesus or the Spirit emanates from the Father or the Father and the Son. And as a result, here we are uh, 1,500 years later with two versions of the Nicene Creed because they couldn't agree on that. By the way, that leads me to say, sometime I hear people say, well, why can't we just all get along? Well, getting along is one thing, but we don't ever always agree on everything. Uh, people say sometimes to me, I don't agree with you. And I say, that's okay. I don't even agree with me sometimes. <laughs> there have been things I've said that afterward I think, why did I say that? That's not exactly accurate. I mean, the person that's closest to me in this world, my own wife fails to recognize the wisdom I possess about certain matters sometimes. <laughs> So when we look back at the church, you know, I see it online. People say, why are we constantly debating and discussing? What kind of witness is that? Well, I think if we do it properly, it's a witness that shows that believers in Christ can debate and discuss and still maintain love and respect for each other. That's what it shows. So you go back a thousand years ago, and there was, the, the, there was a great uh, uh, schism, they called it, the great schism, 
Uh, and then uh, 500 years ago, there was the Great Reformation. And as I said, 500 years ago, Martin Luther was all bent out of shape, as were many people, about what was going on in the church world. The Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences, and it was just ridiculous, some of the things going on in the church world. And so Martin Luther stood up to that. And 500 years ago this month, he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church and ushered in what we now call the Reformation. And so, you know, a thousand years ago, there was a splitting off between the East and the West, Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Western theology. And then 500 years later, which would be 500 years ago now, 16th century, there was a division between the Protestants and the Catholics. And so, and, and, and so now here we are again, 500 years to the day, the last day of this month, if you take that date to be literal, may or may not, but it's, it's kind of like Christmas Day, it's the day appointed as the day of. So here we are 500 years later, and again, now we're due. We're due for something monumental. We're due for something big. If we follow history, we're due for something that's going to change the face of the church world, the face of Christianity. And I think we need it. And I think what we need is another Reformation. In fact, uh, I've been on my Facebook page. If you're on our own Facebook, you can go to Facebook dot com forward slash Dr. Steve McVeigh, and you'll see that every day I'm listing uh, one of 95 theses, I'm calling it, for the 21st century evangelical church, because Luther split off and Protestantism arose in contrast to Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, and now here we are 500 years later, and I think the evangelical church world has left the rail. I think modern 21st century evangelical Christianity has lost the plot. And I think that there's a lot of wrong going on, a lot of fault and failure going on in the 21st century church, a Protestant world, just like there was a lot of wrong going on in the uh, 16th century Catholic world. Uh, and so I want to talk to you about that today. And I want to talk about this new Reformation and give you just a few things. I'm not going to take a long time, but I want to give you a few things that, that I think evidences where we've got it wrong in the modern church world and how we need to repent. Just like Luther denounced the faults of Roman Catholicism 500 years ago and he called on the church to repent, I think the 21st century church needs to repent. What do we believe in the 21st century? Well, what we believe, I suppose, depends on who you ask, but there is an organization called the National Association of Evangelicals in the United States. And I know it is a U.S. entity, but the National Association of Evangelicals is recognized around the world as a spokesperson or a spokes organization, if I can say it that way, for modern Christianity. And if you go to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, who represents what evangelicals today allegedly believe, you will find their statement of faith. And here is their statement of faith. In other words, this is what, for the most part, Western Christianity says is our theological doctrinal stance on the things that matter most to us. And I'll read this statement of faith and then we'll talk about it. And I'm going to tell you before I read it, I think some of it needs to be clarified, and some of it needs to be arranged, rearranged, and some of it misses the point altogether. And I say that because as we read it, you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? And I will tell you what's wrong with that after I've read it. We'll talk about it a little while. The statement says, we believe the Bible to be the inspired, the only infallible, authoritative Word of God. We believe that there is one God eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his virgin birth, in his sinless life, in his miracles, in his vicarious and atoning death through his shed blood, in his bodily resurrection, in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and in his personal return in power and glory. We believe that for the, sal we believe that for the salvation of the lost and sinful people, regeneration by the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. We believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, whose indwelling the Christian is enabled, by whose indwelling the Christian is enabled to live a godly life. We believe in the resurrection of both the saved and the lost. They that are saved unto the resurrection of life and they that are lost unto the resurrection of damnation. 
And then we believe in the spiritual unity of believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there it is, somewhat of a bullet uh, point list of what modern evangelical Christianity believes, what the Western church world believes. And again, as I began by saying, it's not in some instances so much as that what is said in this statement is wrong but rather that most or many Christians misinterpret this statement. And maybe there are some things that need to be rearranged. For instance, if I were to say to you, or anybody out there in culture were to say to you, what do you believe as a Christian? If they were to say that to you, I want to understand Christianity. What do you, as a Christian, believe? What's important to you? I hope that when you answer, the first thing you would talk about would be Christ. Because you're a Christian. So if somebody says, what do you believe? It would stand to reason that the first thing you would want to talk about would be Christ. Not so with the National Association of Evangelicals. With the National Association of Evangelicals determined to put forward in a statement of faith what is the belief of evangelical Christianity, the first thing they say is, we believe the Bible to be the inspired, the only infallible, authoritative Word of God. And so I say to you that in this 21st century reformation that is already happening, the right tide of grace is rising and all the legalistic mops and buckets in the world are not going to stop it, I'll tell you. But in this reformation that is gaining momentum in our day and time, I think that what needs to happen is we need to ensure that Christ is given his rightful place in the profession of the church again and that the Bible is given its rightful place in the confession of the church again. It's interesting that when you ask evangelicals, what do you believe, their statement of faith begins with the Bible and then God comes in a close second. But this is the world we live in. And so first of all, I think that the order of the statement of faith of the National Association of Evangelicals is not just a minor point. I think it is indicative of the mindset of modern evangelical Christians. I grew up in a church, a Baptist church was my background, where we were told and heard again and again and again, what kind of people are we in this church? We were told We are people of the book. We are people of the book. And oftentimes the Bible would be held in the right hand of the pastors. It was exalted. We're people of the book. Another way it has been said by many, and this is said more often, I just live by the Bible. Have you heard that? I live by the Bible. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you look back at the ancient church and the life of the ancient church, the early believers would in no way tell you that they lived by the Scripture. Now, they didn't have a New Testament, so if they had said, I live by the Bible, the book, Bible is a word that just literally means book. You can have a fisherman's Bible, a hunter's Bible, a mechanic's Bible, it just means book. But the early Christians would never have said, we live by the Scripture, The Old Testament Jews would have said that. They they would say, we live by the Torah, we live by the Scripture. But if you want to know what New Testament believers would say, nobody said it better than the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament Bible. And even he didn't say, we live by the Bible. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
When Paul pointed to the source of his lifestyle, he did not point to the Scripture. He pointed to Christ. And so I'm saying this is not just a small point in my mind. Some people might say, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Well, I don't think it's making a big deal out of nothing because I think the order here is indicative of the priority of importance that we in the modern evangelical church give to the place of the Bible in comparison and contrast to the place we give to Jesus himself. The Pharisees lived by the Bible. Jesus said to them, you search, you study the Bible because you think you're going to find life in the Bible. But these scriptures are what actually testify of me. But you won't come to me so that you can have life. You've got your head so deep in the Bible, you can't even see me. Now, I'm telling you, there are whole movements in the Christian world today that do that. They sit in church and they take notes and they are so diligent and, and, and skilled in parsing Greek verbs and going to the etymology of the original, uh, of, the, of the words of Scripture and all of this. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. I do that when I teach. Some of you, you've heard me do that if you've listened to me much. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But I'm telling you, you can stick your head so deep into the Scripture that it becomes an academic pursuit and you can lose Jesus in the process. Jesus said, these are they that testify of me. And so when the statement says, we believe the Bible is the only, only infallible authoritative word of God, whoever wrote that obviously knows nothing of church history. Because I'm going to stretch you on this maybe by saying to you that strictly speaking, literally speaking, now hear me out, don't let your eyes glaze over and throw up a wall in front of your brain when I say this next statement because I'm going to prove it to you. Literally speaking, the Bible is not the Word of God. Jesus is. Literally speaking. Now, I'm not offended when somebody calls the Bible the Word of God if we understand what the word word means. The word word is a, is a means of communication whereby a thought can go from my mind to your mind, and it'll be a word that carries it. It comes out of my mind, into my mouth, it forms the frequency, and it becomes a word, and it passes to you, and when it reaches you, it goes into your ear, and then into your brain, and you process it, and the word becomes a medium by which one thought comes from me to you. And if you want to say the Bible is the word that way with a lowercase w, it is a way that God speaks to us. I have, I have full agreement with that. I absolutely agree with that. But when we say the Bible is the only word of God, the only infallible word of God, and I say, no, it's not. Here's what happens. People who have been steeped in bibliolatry, who think that the Bible is at the top of the food chain, as the NAE apparently does, they think I'm insulting the Bible. But I am not insulting the Bible. For the record, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, and on it goes. But I'm not suggesting to you in any sense that I intend to insult or minimize the place of the Bible, I'm saying to you that in the modern evangelical church, when the Bible has greater priority in our conversation and conduct than the life of Jesus Christ, we've lost the plot. And there are churches everywhere that gladly confess we are Bible churches. And if you attend those churches, they'll prove it. Because you will hear the Bible mentioned 10 to 1 over the mention of Jesus. If a life or a congregation is not Christocentric, Christ-centered, we're missing the mark. If you had said the word of God to the early church, not one single person would have understood you to be referring to Old Testament scriptures. Not one. Because they called the Old Testament writings the scriptures. If you had said the phrase, the word, the word of God in the New Testament church, 
every single person there would have known you were talking about Jesus. St. Athanasius described it this way. He wrote a book called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. It's not a book about the Bible. It's a book about Jesus. And Athanasius said, The Word then visited that earth in which he was always, yet always present and saw all these evils. He takes a body of our nature and that of a spotless virgin in whose womb he makes it his own wherein to reveal himself, conquer death, and restore life. The Word does that. And that's just one of many references from Athanasius' little book called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. The Word of God is Jesus. Athanasius understood it. All the whole early church did. So when the NAE says that the only authoritative Word of God is the Bible, what an insult to Jesus. Now, I know there would be some who would say, well, that's not what we meant. Well, that's what you said. That's what you said. Surely people of that level, of that stature of intellect and biblical understanding and knowledge of Christianity would have thought very carefully through what they say. So if I'm going to see you say, tell me the things that are important to you as a Christian, and I say, well, first of all, the Bible is the only authoritative infallible Word of God. I, I just told you something that's dead wrong. That's just dead wrong. That's not just a matter of priority in, in, in that, that about Scripture should come down the line. That's just dead wrong. Jesus is the only infallible authoritative Word of God. The Bible certainly bears witness to Jesus, but as Jesus himself said, these are they that testify of me. And I want to say it again. In no way is it my intention here to minimize the Bible. And if it sounds to you like I minimize the Bible, I'm minimizing the Bible, I respectfully am suggesting to you that you have been indoctrinated through the years past in your upbringing into giving the Bible a place that God never intended for it to be given. Because the Bible is a witness to the Word of God, who is Jesus. John said as much in the first chapter of John when he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I know you don't picture God Almighty standing up there with a big old black letter Bible in his hand when John said that. <laughs> you know that's not what he was saying. You know that. In fact, you laugh because it's laughable. But 20 centuries later, it's not so laughable when the National Association of Evangelicals says that the Scripture is the Word of God. But when I say that's what John meant, John meant the Scripture is the Word of God, you laugh at that. But if the NAE says that the Word of God is the Bible, nobody's laughing anymore. We ought to have the same reaction. And the reaction is, that's ridiculous. John goes on and says about this Word that existed with God. He said, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light that shines in darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it, still don't. God created all things by his word, but understand that his word is Jesus. He's the catalyst and cause of creation, Paul wrote in Colossians. The Word of God is a person. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How many of you grew up believing that verse is about the Bible? I did. Anybody else grew up believing that? You heard that verse growing up? We said, well, that's the Bible. The Bible is alive. Really? Really? What, what part of it? Is it the leather? <laughs> is it the ink? Is it the paper? What part of it is alive and active? Oh, okay, maybe we define that. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And then it says, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You mean the Bible can independently judge my thoughts? The Bible has the ability to judge my heart? Well, the next verse, verse 13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. Verse 12 that talks about the word of God is talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing down to dividing between soul and spirit, showing us our deepest, our deepest uh, selves, 
He is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing is hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to His eyes. And so here's the thing I say in the spirit of a need for a 21st century reformation. We need to repent. And we need to get our minds right. Change our minds and realize that if you're going to talk about your faith as a Christian, for goodness sake, let your lead card be Christ. I mean, you know I'm right. You go to somebody you work with this week and say, well, what's your church believe? And they're going to probably say, well, we just believe the Bible. Won't they? Well, how do you all live your lives? Well, we just live by what the Bible says. Well, what about Jesus? Well, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Of course, him too. If you want to go there. <laughs> and then the... Then the statement goes on and says, We believe that there is one God, eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there's a description of the place of the Son and the Father and the Spirit. And, and it's not, again, that it's, it's, it's altogether wrong. And I'm not saying they could put everything in a statement of faith. So what I'm about to say is not something I think they could put everything in a statement of faith about, but it's not what's on that statement. It's what evangelicals in the 21st century believe about these. We can talk about we believe in one God, yes, but we believe in Father, Son, and Spirit. But the question is, what do you believe about the Father, Son, and Spirit? And I contend to you that in the 21st century church, what we believe about the Father is horrible. What we believe about the Son is terrible. What we believe about the Spirit is deplorable. It's what we believe about the Father, Son, and Spirit. For instance, in the modern church world, we have such a convoluted, distorted, uh, terrible concept of God the Father that the concept, the general consensus about who God the Father is in the church world of the 21st century is 180 degrees the opposite direction from what the early church believed. How is that? Because the modern church believes that God Almighty is an angry, judicial, punitive judge who sits up there looking over the banister of heaven and is obsessed with human behavior above everything else. If you ask people when it comes to the human race, what is it that God is most interested in, most concerned about, Almost all evangelical Christians will say, well, the thing God is most concerned about is that we're living a life that honors Him. And that's not a wrong statement. But then if you say, well, what does that mean to live a life that honors Him? They're going to follow it up with some spiel about moralistic or religious lifestyles. And in other words, they're going to say the thing most important to God is that we live our lives a certain way. That's the thing most important to God. That's what they're going to say. But I'm going to tell you, nothing could be further than truth, from the truth than that. The most important God thing to God about the human race is that we were, would understand how much he loves us. You say, but does it behavior matter? Well, of course it matters. But when we understand how much he loves us, guess what? That transforms behavior. Jesus in his priestly prayer in John 17 said it. He said, you want to know what eternal life is? And that priestly prayer said, this is eternal life, Father, that they would know you, that they might know you and me, the one you've sent. And the word know there is the word used in the scripture that says that Mary did not know a man until after the birth of Jesus. It doesn't mean cognitive knowledge of somebody. It means an intimate union with somebody else. And Jesus said the thing that's most important to God is that we know him and that we know how much that fully he knows us. He said, I pray that the love that's in you and me and that we share together would be in them and that they'd understand that I'm in you and you're in me and we're in them. God, Father, help them to get this union that you're all about love. Help them to understand love. Help them understand the oneness they have with you and the love you have for them. That's what they need to understand. But if you say to the evangelical church world in the 21st century, well, what is it that people need to know about God? Oh, they'll say, well, they need to know God loves them and he wants to save them so that they can live a life, certain lifestyle that 
but it's got the, the end result will always be behavior modification because they, modern church doesn't understand that when we un- receive the love of God, that does modify and change our behavior. The church world today is continually spewing out scathing messages about an angry God. But the Bible says that Jesus, when he came into this world, was and still is the perfect expression of his Father. And if you look at the life of Jesus, the only people I can see in the Scripture whom Jesus tore into in a, in a very aggressive way were the squeaky clean religious types, the Pharisees. The others were drawn to him, and the religious ones were repulsed by him. In fact, they crucified him. Isn't it interesting? You come 20 centuries later, and we claim to be the expression uh, of the body of Christ in this world. And isn't it interesting that here we are 20 centuries later, and we repel the people that Jesus attracted, and we attract the people that Jesus repelled. What's happened? What has happened? Well, it's because we're giving a wrong message about who God the Father is. But Jesus was the perfect expression of the Father. And if there is some angry, vindictive, moralistic uh, side of the Father that exists, as many have come to believe, then Jesus didn't do a very good job of showing us who his Father is because he showed us nothing of that. And don't come forward to me with Old Testament verses that show an angry God because I'm going to say to you, you are not living in the Old Testament. You are living in the New Covenant. And when you look at the Old Testament, you have a vantage point they didn't have, which is you can take Christ into the Old Testament with you and say, help me understand this now. They couldn't do that because the incarnation hadn't happened. We understand the Old Testament to the lens of New Testament revelation. To be more exact, we understand the New Old Testament through the, through the lens of Christ himself. And even Christ himself talking to those in his day, back 2,000 years ago, about the Old Testament, said things like, I know you've always heard it said to hate your enemies, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I know that's what you heard. Well, where'd they hear it? At church, when the law was read to them. And Jesus went on and says, but I say to you, there's better news than that. And Jesus brought them forward in their understanding of the love of the Father. Jesus did not reveal an angry, vindictive, punitive God. And let me tell you plain and simple, we all need to know this in the modern church world, but let me make sure you as an individual know it. God's not mad at you. God the Father loves you. He adores you. There's nothing you've ever done that's going to, uh, you're going to have to, you know, take a pounding for, so to speak. He's not mad. He's taken and removed your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. We don't understand the Father in the modern church. We don't understand the Son in the modern church. Many people believe Jesus came into this world so that he could die on the cross so that God could pour out his anger on Jesus so that he wouldn't have to pour out his anger on us. They see Jesus, it's like good cop, bad cop. They see Jesus as the good one who came and stood in and took our place and let the Father pour out all his anger on him so he wouldn't have to pour out his anger on us. When the Bible says that God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You didn't have a division between the Father and Son at the cross so that the Father was angry and getting all that pent-up rage out of his system against his Son, and the Son was valiantly taking it for us so that when it was all said and done and Jesus cried, it is finished, the Father finally said, good, got that out of my system. Is it any wonder that in the evangelical church that so many times we feel close to Jesus, but we're not so sure about his Father? Somehow we've got in our mind that, the, that God the Father has a level of justice that somehow is more strict than God the Son. 
because God the Son was willing to forgive us and even give his life so that we could be forgiven. But nobody had to punish us in his book to be forgiven. But in his father's book, that's a different story. Somebody had to be punished for his justice to be satisfied. It's a, it's a distorted form of human justice that is as far from biblical justice as you can get. So we don't even understand the son. Jesus did not take God's anger at the cross. There was anger at the cross, but it wasn't from the Father. The only anger at the cross was the anger of the people who were crucifying Jesus. When it comes to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there was love there. God demonstrated His love toward us at the cross. And that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the modern church doesn't even understand the Son. We see Him as a go-between who keeps the Father off our back. Two very different personality types in the modern church world. And then let me mention the Spirit. The statement of faith mentions the Spirit. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the Spirit, and there always has been in, in recent t- days. I mean, I grew up, some, some of you grew up in charismatic Pentecostal backgrounds. You didn't get this, but in my world, we grew up, when I was a young person, calling the Holy Spirit it. Anybody else grow up like that? And there's a reason. Some of the versions of the Bible even do that. Even the King James sadly says the Spirit itself uses the neuter instead of the actual gender that Scripture uses, which, by the way, is feminine. You know, in, in, the lang- in language, there's masculine, feminine, and neuter. Masculine is male, feminine is female, neuter is an object. I don't know if those guys that translated the King James back then, I don't know if it was such a patriarchal society. I don't know if it was an honest mistake. I don't see how it was. I don't know if it was just because misogyny was so prevalent in the day that they translated the Spirit as it. Some translations say he, but I'm going to tell you straight up, if the Bible is translated the way the original language of Scripture is and indicates, when the Spirit is mentioned in Scripture, the Spirit would be referred to as she. It would. The Hebrew word ruach is feminine, she. And I know this makes, you know, male chauvinists break out in hives. <laughs> but again, as the people of God, we are growing. We are understanding. There's not new truth. But the trappings and the barnacles of our culture are being torn away. And we're being able to understand and see the truth of Scripture and the truth of who God is more clearly as time goes on. And I can tell you the Holy Spirit, if you want to go there, we know God is not gender, one of gender. God's not male or female in a literal sense. But if we want to talk about it, the metaphorical or anthropomorphic terms for God, describing human features to God, uh, then you've got the Father, God the Father. You've got God the Son, Jesus. And you've got God the Holy Spirit who is referred to as feminine in Scripture. In fact, there are Bible verses that indicate that. Verses like this, Isaiah Chapter 49, verse 15, God talking about God says, Does a woman forget her baby at the breast or fail to cherish the child of her womb? And then God goes on and says, I won't. Even if if another mother will, I won't. Numbers 11 and 12, was it I who conceived all these people? What is it, I who gave them birth? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom like a nurse with a baby at the breast? Well, the answer is, yeah, it was me, God said. Psalm 131, 2 and 3 David got it. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. My soul within me is like a weaned child. John 7, 38, from his breast shall flow the fountains of living water. 1 Peter 2, 2, you who you are newborn and like babies, you should be hungry for nothing but milk. Newborn babies want their mother's milk. But now that you've tasted the goodness of Christ, it only goes. So you, you, you see what I'm saying? Even the Bible, but we're, it's confirmation bias when we don't see that. We've, we've always thought of the, the triune God as exclusively male. And so we don't see the, the feminine aspects of who God is. But there are others in the Scripture as well. For instance, I've said already that the word ruach is used in Genesis and Psalm. It, 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 it's, it's a feminine word. And, and even in the New Testament, the word is pneuma. The word means breath or spirit or inspiration. The compound names of God, El Shaddai, is the many-breasted God. Think about that. God identifies as 
El Shaddai, the many-breasted one. God is compared to a seamstress in Genesis, compared to a washwoman in Isaiah and Psalm, compared to a midwife in Psalms and Isaiah, compared to a woman baking bread in Matthew chapter 13. There, the Bible is, is, is plentiful with, 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 with metaphors and direct uh, words used to show the, the femininity of our God. And listen, don't misunderstand where I'm going with this now. I'm not talking about feminist theology, and I don't want to get into something that you don't care about or know about. But I'll say this. There is a, there is a whole school of theology called feminist theology, and, it's, and it is, a, it is a, uh, a militant feminist approach to Scripture. It, it's the opposite of male chauvinism. Misogyny is a horrendous sin even here in the 21st century. But the opposite of misogyny and male chauvinism is a feminist theology that uh, belittles masculinity. What God wants us to know is that the relationships, the familial relationships of mom and dad and the children, the relationship between the husband and the wife, all of that is an expression of the nature of our God. God is masculine. God is feminine. God is authoritative like a father. God is submissive like a child. The best of the human race, the best of the human race, is a picture of what our God is like. And I've said this before, but let me just throw it out and mention it briefly again, and it's this. If you have a hard time relating to God because you've always seen God strictly as the father figure and you had an autocratic, authoritarian, overbearing, or even abusive father in this world, and when people stand up and talk about God being your father, that doesn't ring your bell because you've never had a good experience with anything connected to the word father, then let me give you some good news. You can relate to God through the word and the concept of mother. This is biblical. I didn't say it. I gave you the verses where he said, I'm going to nurture you and hold you to my breast like... This is God saying it, not me. I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> so if you have a problem with the fatherhood, relate to God through the motherhood. Or if you didn't have good parents at all, I've got good news. I've got good news. The Bible even compares our relationship to him as that of a bride and groom. And if you've got a crappy husband, the Bible compares it to your best friend, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I mean, there's got to be something there for you, right? <laughs> got to be something there you can connect to because he's covered all the bases. Our God has covered all the bases to say, here's what I'm like. I'm like the friend who loves you so much you can tell me anything and I'll still accept you. In fact, I'll lay down my life for you. I'm like the husband who holds you in his arms. I'm like the wife that gently caresses your face. I'm like the child who jumps up in your arms to be hugged and to hug you. I'm like the parent who affirms you. I'm like the dad who protects you. I'm like the mother who holds your hand and tells you how wonderful you are. <laughs> what do you need? What do you need? Because let me tell you, whatever you need, I am. You get it? I need, God says, well, I am. So we've got it all upside down about God in the modern church world. We don't understand clearly who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Spirit is. And man, oh man, I go into a lot of places. If I talk about the femininity of God's nature, oh my soul. I mean, it's funny. You, you, you say, I hear it. People say, the Holy Spirit, is, it has a feminine nature. The, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit. The word Ruach is feminine. And here are all these verses that say the Holy Spirit is feminine. And I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says. So you can believe it about him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Because some of us all grew up the same way. And it's like, it's like you. And so this is what the Bible says. So you can believe it about <laughs> It doesn't want to come out. <laughs> you can't bring yourself to say it, can you? <laughs> but the Bible does. Well, let me just touch on a couple of things. I'm just going to fly over 
the two last things, which is humanity or man. The, 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 the statement of faith mentions man, and uh, the, the modern church world doesn't understand the, the intrinsic value of human beings. People think that what Adam did wrecked, wrecked the original design of, of humanity uh, so that we now have lost our original imprint and because we've, they say we've lost it, we're sinful, we're nasty, we're dirty, we're depraved. You, some of you grew up in that. I believed it for a lot of years. I'd say we're depraved. I'd say things like, you know, the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. You know the Bible says that. Well, the Bible does say that. But where does it say that? It says that in the Old Testament. And even after that in, in Jeremiah... In Ezekiel, God went on and said, but I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out that old desperate deceive. I'm going to take, and I'm going to give you a new heart. And then you come on over to Romans 10, and Paul says, now you're obedient from the heart. Let me tell you something. Listen to what I'm about to tell you, because some, some of you have never been told this in your life. You've got a good heart. You've got a good heart. Because God did what God promised God was going to do, and he's given you a new heart. You can trust your heart if you can get in touch with your heart. If you move past your ego, some of you see your ego, your flesh, and you think that's your heart. It's not. How can you know when you're looking at your heart? Because it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. It looks like love. You can trust your heart once you learn to discover your heart. And so we have a faulty concept of ourselves. Identity in Christ may be the most important thing that people need to learn these days that we are defined by the fact that we are loved by God. Humanity has been crucified with Jesus Christ. Did you see the movie, The, uh, uh, the Passion, the Mel Gibson version of the movie, The Passion? I like that scene where Jesus is going to the cross and he falls to the ground under the weight of the cross. And his mother, Mary, comes running out to him, weeping, and she leans over, and he pushes up, and he looks at her, and he says, Mother, I make all things new. I make all things new. And, folks, he did. He made all things new. So we need to see the inherent intrinsic value of people, and we need to stop judging and condemning people, and we need to see them through the eyes of Jesus. Jesus didn't go around judging and condemning people. The outcast, those who were despised by culture, and certainly those who were despised by the religious world, those were the ones Jesus seemed to be attracted to. And he called out their inherent worth. And then sin. Sin. The modern church world sees sin as a crime that needs to be punished when the Bible plainly teaches that crime was a disease that needed to be healed, and the good news of the gospel is the great physician has come. The great physician has come. Sin never was a crime that needed to be punished. Sin was a disease that needed to be healed, and it has been healed by Christ through the incarnation. And finally, salvation. Salvation is based on his intervention, not our invitation. Salvation has been given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter the apostle said that we have been begotten again, born again by his resurrection from the dead. Now, if we don't know that, we still need to experience that. But we only experience what has already happened in the resurrection of Jesus. I love the old hymns I grew up with. I wish we still sang the old hymns the way we sang them back then, without changing the tune and the beat and all of that. I'm an old man now. What can I say? Back in my day. And there was one I loved. It was number 216 in the Baptist hymnal. I sang these songs enough. I know all the words and I know the page number of the old blue hymnal. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. 
very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. You know it? Sing it. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me, love lifted even me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Well, what part did I have in that? That's why it's called grace. I love it. Let's pray the evangelical world will get back to the truth of this original gospel. Because when we do, not only will we as the church be transformed, but the world will too. God bless you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve. Put that last slide up if you could. We're going to try and do many things at once. Um, that was awesome. Steve, thank you. If you move closer, you can do this all the time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I didn't say it or make it up. It's good news. The gospel's got to be good news or for everybody or it's no good. It's not good news. It's got to be for all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for Steve. Thank you for his heart. Thank you for his growth. Thank you for all the things he's risked. Father, yes, he's being misunderstood in the church culture, but you know his heart. And may we all grow deeper in our understanding of what your love really is. And when we think we've arrived, we've barely scratched the surface. Thank you for that, Father. 